Hosea 8, Israel reaps what it sows. Verse 1, put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good, the enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations, like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria, like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up, and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. But the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. In verse 1, the prophet, he calls on the people to put the trumpet to their lips. Why the trumpet to the lips? Because invaders are going to come. And naturally, in the city, cities and nations have watchmen watching out for their own citizens, their own countrymen, on guard for the enemy. But here, he's saying, the enemy is coming. The enemy is coming indeed. It's too late. And why is the enemy coming? Because of their sins. Verse 1, the enemy comes like an eagle. Like an eagle, the enemy comes. Eagles pounce on their prey. Eagles get their way. Rarely do eagles not get their way. They are a successful bird of prey. They will accomplish what they want to accomplish. And here, the object of their prey or their prey is the house of the Lord, the temple of God. The foreign enemies are going to destroy the temple of God, the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is, the temple where the sacrifices are offered, the temple that represents heaven and redemption that's possible in Christ as a type of Christ, the temple is. That temple is going to be destroyed by foreigners. Even though it's known by the name of the Lord, it's the house of the Lord, God will destroy his own house. 
It's not the enemies destroying them ultimately. It's not idols destroying them. It's God destroying his own house because the people have profaned it. The people have desecrated his own place of worship. And because they desecrate it, God will destroy it. He says so in verse 1, the reason, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. They don't obey the Ten Commandments. They don't obey the moral law. They don't obey the law written in the heart. They don't obey the ritual law according to its true purpose. They don't understand its true purpose. They think that if they offer the sacrifices, everything else is fine. God will get the sacrifices, but I will get my way. I will live as I please. But he says, no, they've transgressed and rebelled against God's word. This is the nature of people. They rebel against what God reveals. And then in verse 2, they have false confidence. They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. They claim, they allege that God is their God and that they know God. But God doesn't really know them and they don't really know God. What's more important is not whether they claim to know God, which in this case is an empty claim. It's vacuous. The real issue is whether God knows them. And God doesn't know them. He does not know them as his own possession. They claim it, but it's not true. In this case, you can't name it and claim it. It doesn't work. It has to work in the opposite direction based on God's grace. Verse 3, Israel has rejected the good. He further explains, if they reject the good, then they deserve evil. They deserve the punishment that they will get because they rejected good. This reminds us of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had good all around them, yet they focused on the one tree and sinned against God. This is the nature of sinners. We see good all around us, and if we have our sane and objective moments, we would say, yes, that's good. But we reject the good and cling to the evil. So they reject good, and therefore what happens? The enemy will pursue him. When good is rejected, then the enemy will come to destroy. Whether this enemy is spiritual or physical or both, the enemy will come. What have they done? Verse 4, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. When God says he did not know it, he doesn't mean it in terms of his omniscience. What he means is they did not seek God's approval. God was not consulted. That's what he means, not by me, I did not know it. They did not seek him as the ultimate wise counselor. This is similar to what they did when they wanted a king with King Saul. They craved to be like the nations in 1 Samuel 8, 10, and 12, 1 Samuel 8, 10, and 12. They craved to be like the nations, 
without first asking God if it was okay. And they wanted a king like the nations around them without consulting God. And even the northern kingdom, and at times the southern kingdom, they would usurp, they would assassinate, they would have evil men, sometimes commanders of the military, assassinate and usurp his predecessor in order to become king. These were evil men doing evil things. All 20 of the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, were evil kings. All 20 of them. And here, when he says they have set up kings, it's clearly illustrated with the northern kingdom. That northern kingdom that began in 1 Kings 12 ended in 2 Kings 17 by the hands of the Assyrians. Assyrians who are mentioned in verse 9. They have gone up to Assyria. The country that they thought would help them ended up destroying them. They deserve it because they would not consult God. They had wicked rulers who were models of wickedness and led the people into wickedness. All kinds of idolatry and immorality. Idolatry, verse 4. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. They made with their precious metals, which God granted to them. They didn't earn it by their own strength and their own wisdom. God granted it to them, the, the precious metals of silver and gold. He gave it to them. And yet they use God's resources against God. They earn income, but they use their income against the God who gave them the income. They make idols. And here even, that they might be cut off. This speaks of their deliberate rejection of God. They know what the penalty is for idolatry Yet they do it anyways, to be cut off, to be destroyed. Some people have such a comprehension of the truth of the gospel, they will openly declare to you that they believe that it is true, but they know, and though they know the consequence of unbelief is to be destroyed, to be cut off, they choose to be cut off. They say, I know it's true, but I don't want to repent. Or they blame God and say, God hasn't given me a heart to repent. They actually say those words. Verse 5. He, likely this is God. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? God says, or the prophet says, God has rejected your calf. What is this calf? Throughout the history of idolatry, many nations worship calves or cows or oxen, bulls. They worship them. They worship all kinds of animals, but that is one of their favorite ones. 
That was true of Israel in Egypt. It was true of the Egyptians in Egypt. And it was also true of Israel in the wilderness. You remember the famous, the notorious incident in Exodus 32. Moses is on the mountain. The people become anxious. They approach Aaron and say, we don't know what happened to this Moses, so make us a a calf, a golden calf, that we may worship it. And they did. And Aaron endorsed it. This is also what's happening in the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. They made a calf and they worshipped it. God's anger is against them. His anger burns. This is an attribute of God that is understudied, underappreciated. The anger of God, the wrath of God. And this wrath is not Old Testament wrath as though there is no wrath in the New. The wrath of God is all over the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. It's all over the place if one would simply read the New Testament at face value and look for the word anger or wrath or fury or even words related to it such as judgment, condemnation, punishment. These words are all over the New Testament. And God's anger is still that way against unrepentant sinners. He says, how long will they be incapable of innocence? They are guilty. They are full of shame. They're incapable of innocence, but they don't recognize it. They don't acknowledge it. They don't acknowledge the fact that their innocence is gone and they should be ashamed of that. They are incapable of innocence. That's the fact but they prolong it. That's why he says, how long? How long? Verse six, for from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Israel even is so audacious in sin, Israel should know because God destroyed the idols of Egypt. Exodus 12.12 Exodus 12.12 says that when God judged Israel, uh, sorry, judged uh, Egypt for Israel, Exodus 12.12, when he judged Egypt, he also judged the gods of Egypt. He punished the gods of Egypt. Israel was clearly told that. They clearly saw that. And yet Israel hires craftsmen to make an idol. And they know it's not God, but they worship, they make it and worship it anyways. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. How will that happen? The foreigners who worship idols too Their idols are known by different names. They will believe that their idols granted them power to destroy Israel and Israel's idols, Israel's gods, including the calf of Samaria. So they will 
Come, they will rampage the whole nation, wipe out the whole nation, find the idols and destroy them. Throw them in fire, break them in pieces, depending on how they're made. They will treat them accordingly, including the calf of Samaria. Why? For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Sowing wind is vain. Sowing wind is counterproductive. And not only is it counterproductive, it reaps whirlwind. What's the point of sowing wind? How do you sow wind? <laughs> it, it's, he's, he's using an analogy of, yeah. of something that's so crazy. Pointless. Pointless, yes. Well, actually, even today, people try to invent ways to control the weather. So people are very inventive in thinking that they can control their circumstances or control nature. But in this case, the wind that they sow is their vacuous ethics, their vacuous behavior. There's a lot of windy words, windy works. He's talking about the way they live, how they conduct their life. It's full of sin. And he's comparing it to wind. The whirlwind would be like, um, would reap the destruction. The destruction of it. Yes. They reap the destruction of it. So if, if they sowed a particular sin, then they would reap the destruction for that particular sin. The whirlwind is that. Because the whirlwind destroys in its path. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. The grain barely yields. And then when it does yield, foreigners, strangers, devour it. The people who own the land are not able to enjoy their own crops. Foreigners do as punishment. And that is just a symbol of the greater punishment. Verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. The, the strangers swallow up the yield of the ground, of the fields, the harvest. But it's really a symbol of verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. What God does to curse nature and animals is really a punishment ultimately against the people, in this case specifically Israel. This should not surprise us. This is what happened in Genesis 3. When God punished Adam and Eve, he also cursed the ground. It yielded thorns and thistles as a result of man's sin. Same here. Ultimately, the punishment is against the people who commit the sins. It's not that God is against a fruitful harvest. He's not against apples and he's not against olives. He's not even against cows and bulls. He's really against the people. And the means of their productivity or the enjoyment of their productivity is cursed because the people are cursed. Israel is swallowed up. And 
They are now among the nations, like a vessel in which no one delights. He says they are now among the nations, yet it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. Hosea, being a prophet, uses the present tense and occasionally the past tense or the present perfect as he does in verse 9. Israel, um, for they have gone up they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. So they have gone up. They've done that. And Ephraim has hired lovers like a wild donkey all alone. A wild donkey behaves as it wills. It is untamed. And Israel has behaved that way. They have behaved that way in their mind, in their heart, and also eventually by their actions. They rail against God. They kick against the goads that would tame them. They kick against them. They hire lovers, verse 9, but the lovers will turn against them. Now remember, the analogy Hosea has been using since chapter 1 is that Israel is a prostitute, a harlot. But unlike the typical prostitute, the typical prostitute is paid by the illicit lovers. Correct? But in this case, Israel hires lovers. Similar to the irony of Ezekiel 16, where Ezekiel said the same thing, that prostitutes usually are paid, but this is an unusual prostitute. This prostitute pays her lovers. And these lovers, the Assyrians and other nations among them, will cause their devastation. They will be exiled so that, verse 8, they are now among the nations. They are also like a vessel that is broken. When we have vessels that are breakable vessels, they have seen their use. They have some wear and tear on them. They are worthless. Perhaps they are cracked. Something deficient is in them. Some defect has come about in them. What do we do with them? What do we do with undesirable vessels? We throw them away. Sometimes even we crack them, trash them, break them in pieces. This is what we do. And that's what Israel is now. An undesirable vessel. No one delights Verse 10, even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. They might hire allies among the nations, but those allies will not be powerful enough to circumvent the will of God. The will of God is supreme and God will gather them up. They might, in desperation, seek for help, but their helpers will be 
unable to withstand God's power to gather them up and destroy them, however he pleases. They will begin to diminish. So even though Israel was as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, now they will be countable. They used to be uncountable. Now they will be countable because they will be very few. Many of them, the vast majority of them, will be destroyed. Because of the burden of the king of princes. Perhaps this is a reference to the mighty king, say, the dictator or the emperor, the one who has control over all of the petty kings or petty rulers throughout his empire. He's going to put a severe burden on Israel and is going to demoralize them and destroy them. Verse 11. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Ephraim, another name for Israel, because Ephraim was one of the largest tribes in the north. Ephraim multiplied altars for sin to become altars of sinning. They had an intentional purpose to sin against God. We often say that people who do these things have good intentions. But God declares they did not have good intentions. They did not have good motives, right motives, pure motives. They multiplied altars for sin. They have become altars of sinning for him. They multiplied building these all across the landscape, all across the nation for sin, for the purpose of sin. And that's what they became. Altars of sin. Altars of sinning for him. He speaks of Ephraim as an individual because of the collective singular use of the nation. Ephraim is this nation. What did they fight against? What did they not consult? Verse 12. Though I wrote for him, the him is Ephraim, Israel, the nation. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. Did God fail to deliver his word to them? No. Did God fail to make clear his words to them? No. Did God give them only one commandment? No. Did he give them 10? Yes. Did he give them explanations of the 10? Yes. And according to medieval scholars and rabbis, 613 specific laws. 613. If, you, if Hosea means this literally, of the 613, there are precepts and implications of the 613. And he says 10,000, if he meant it literally, that they would number about 10,000. But if he meant it 
figuratively, we could find many, many implications, more than 10,000, out of all the law of Moses, even out of the Ten Commandments, or even of the two commandments that summarize the Ten Commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. There would be innumerable implications or precepts to know how to live. This means that we cannot, or Israel cannot, say, God, you did not tell me enough. You did not make it clear. You did not instruct me (coughs) sufficiently. They can't say that. They can't say it at all. Because Israel regarded God's precepts a strange thing. As though God's law is some foreigner who lives on the other side of the globe and you know nothing about him. That's the way they treated God's law. As some foreigner, something very odd and strange that you know nothing about. Verse 13. In this way, they treated God's law as something strange. Verse 13. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. But the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. God's sacrificial gifts, these are the ones he enumerated, such as in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapters 1 to 9, or even we might say Leviticus 1 to 17. This is the first half or the majority of the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 to 17, he prescribes to them and prohibits to them. He prescribes what they should do and prohibits what they should not do. Leviticus 1 to 17, primarily there in that book. What they should do, what they should not do with God's sacrifices. But they don't do it accordingly. He says, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it. They sacrifice it and eat it as though everything is fine. They did it according to God's law. But we know, such as Malachi chapter 1, 6 to 14, that they often did not offer the right sacrifices. Lame animals, blind animals, defective animals. And they weren't supposed to do it that way. Leviticus 22 made it clear not to offer defective animals. But they did. That would be one way in which they offer the sacrifice and then eat it as though everything is fine. We did it the way God told us. The other problem is they offer sacrifices and trust in the ritual rather than trusting in Christ. The rituals represent Christ. They're supposed to believe in Christ. The animal itself, the shed blood of the animal itself, will not save them from sin. Christ will save them. He has to die for their sins. Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. Hebrews 10, 1 to 18 clearly teaches this fact that they should have trusted Christ, not the blood of God of the animals. And if one says 
they didn't understand this. Well, Psalm 16, Psalm 40, and Psalm 51, to name three. Psalm 16, 40, and 51. These verses in these Psalms clearly taught the people that they needed to trust in Christ. Psalm 16, 40, and 51, that they needed to trust in Christ. A third mistake they made. They sacrificed the flesh and eat it. Is thinking that the ritual, in spite of their evil deeds, would take care of their evil deeds instead of repentance. Instead of repenting, they trusted that the offering of the animal would take care of their unrepentant immorality, their unrepentant idolatry, their unrepentant wild life. That would be the third way in which their sacrifices did not suffice. And that's why God says, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. He doesn't delight in sacrifices like that. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel the prophet said that against King Saul by the word of the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. 1 Samuel 15, 22 to 23. Further in Hosea 8, 13, now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. When the scripture says God will remember their iniquity, it means he will remember their iniquity against them. That is, he is ready to act to punish them. It doesn't mean he forgot and someone reminded God and then God remembered to punish them. It doesn't mean God forgets. It means that God is ready to act against them, to punish them. Ezekiel 18.22, Ezekiel 18.22, speaking of the opposite of forgiveness, it says, all his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. To remember in the Bible, in these contexts, has to do with whether God is going to forgive or whether he's going to punish. And in this case, he's going to punish them. He will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. He uses the very word punish in Hosea 8.13. Another case of God not remembering sins against us is in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 14 to 18. There he actually says, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any remembrance of them. No remembrance. If God forgives, then he doesn't remember sins against us. In this case, he is because they won't repent. 
In fact, the land of Egypt that God said, you'll never see it again. They're going to see it again. They're going to be slaves in Egypt. This actually happened in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapters 43 and 44, they fled to Egypt in the time of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 43 to 44, they actually did, some of them actually did return to Egypt. Verse 14, Hosea 8, 14, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Israel forgot his maker. Their maker is their redeemer, no one else. They forgot the one who made them, and they worshipped idols that they made. Because of that, they built palaces and fortified cities and trusted in them. They built palaces and thinking that they could withstand the enemy. They built fortified cities thinking that they were powerful enough, able to beat down the battering rams of the enemy, trying to batter down their city walls. But God says, you might multiply them, Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. You might do so, but I will send a fire on its cities. What God sends will be destroyed. Whether he means literal fire, such as when God sent fire and brimstone against Sodom and Gomorrah, who won that battle? God did, right? They were completely wiped out. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two cities, they were completely destroyed. Or if God means it in a figurative way, by sending foreign armies. The foreign armies will win. Did they not win? Did they not win when Israel sinned under Joshua? Joshua chapter 7. Israel, Joshua 6 and 7. Israel sinned in the time of Joshua when God, in His grace, was giving Joshua the victory. And yet they sinned and lost in their next battle against the city of Ai, Joshua 7. They lost. Didn't they lose many times in the book of Judges, in the book of Samuel, before the time of Hosea? Yes, they lost many times. Why would they think that they were invincible? They were destroyed and enslaved by their enemies many, many times. God sent fire in that way to destroy them. But... This is what happens with people who are engrossed in sin. When they're blinded by their sin, they think, nothing's going to happen to me. Everything will be just fine. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But God will be against them and consume them, even their palatial dwellings. Their big buildings, their big houses, their big fortresses, their big palaces, their big temples. Whatever they build, God will consume, destroy it all. Because God is more powerful than any man or any number of men.
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.